if you were to come into my office here at the church, you would notice that I have a number of photographs of my family that are scattered throughout. And if you were to ask me, Doug, are those pictures there because you can't remember what they look like? I would answer no, senility has not quite reached that level. Those pictures are not there to inform my intellect. They're there to touch my heart. Because you see, throughout the day when I look at those pictures, they remind me of the loved ones that I'm temporarily separated from. And from the youngest to the oldest, I think about what each one of those children daughter-in-laws, son-in-laws, grandchildren, and my wife mean to me. And my heart is touched. I recall the fond memories that we've had together that's memorialized in some of those pictures. And I move to thank God for, for blessing me with such a wonderful, wonderful family. What's more, I'm encouraged to pray for their protection and grace and I long to be reunited with them and to feel their hugs and their kisses and their embraces and to enjoy their company. Yesterday, out of the blue, my, my grandson, Sam, called me from Grand Junction. And he said, Granddaddy, I just wanted to say hi. You know, one of the things that I've learned about the value of a picture is not the intellectual aspect of it, but rather the emotional part that those pictures invoke. They have a way of touching your heart. Jesus, just before he was crucified, left us a picture of himself so that we could remember him. And it's a snapshot where Jesus says, I want you as my followers to pause and look at it often. And it should cause you to, to remember the great love that I have for you that was shown supremely at the cross. And I want it to fill your heart with a growing desire to see me when I come again. What's more, when you reflect upon it, I want you to look at yourself and ask yourself, am I ready to meet him when he comes back? When Jesus comes back and I'm, I'm meeting him face to face, am I ready? You see, the whole process around the Lord's table should touch our hearts and cause us to say, thank you, God. Thank you for what you've given me in Jesus. That snapshot of Jesus is talked about in all four Gospels, as well as Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And when you put all of the varying snapshots from the different perspective together, you find a rather full and complete and detailed account of what unquestionably was the most important meal in the history of the world. And what I want to do from that snapshot is ask the question, how should we come to the Lord's table? Maybe you're here this morning and you're new to Mid-Valley Bible Church. Let me just mention that, as I did at the beginning, we do not practice closed communion. We celebrate the Lord's table the first Sunday of the month. Some churches certainly observe it more frequently, others less. 
And I suppose a case could be made that celebrating it as often as we do, we could easily run the risk of making the Lord's Supper into a meaningless ritual. But that's true of anything that's done repeatedly. And I would argue that the solution is not that we do the Lord's table less frequently, but rather deal with the problem that causes your heart to grow cold and insensitive. I believe with all of my heart this morning that people who neglect coming to the Lord's table are missing one of the key disciplines to spiritual health. I remember when Connie and I were living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. On Sundays, we would drive about 80 miles east of Tulsa to a small community where there was a little Bible church called J Bible Church. I was initially asked to go there for pulpit supply, and I went there, and they liked me, and they kept asking me to come back. And so over time, I just said, why don't we do this? I said, why don't I come every Sunday, and on the Sundays that I can't come, I'll make arrangements to have somebody come and preach there for you. And they were thrilled to be relieved of that burden. And I got some folks from John Brown University to come. I would have my son-in-law go there and preach. I had two of my nephews preach. True story. Susan's son, my sister's son, who was at John Brown University. Now, the service started at 11 o'clock. He preached until 12.15. I never preached that long. And the next Sunday, when I went back, they said, it was fantastic. They said, we had no idea he spoke as long as he did. But what was interesting, is shortly after I got there, I asked them how often they had communion. And I remember they looked at me and kind of with a longing look, they said, you know, we, we haven't had communion in years. And I said, we're going to correct that. We're going to correct that right away. And we begin having communion on a regular basis, just like we do here. And Janice, who was the woman in charge, she was a rancher's wife. I remember the first time we celebrated communion, she came up to me. And her eyes were misty. And she said, that was so meaningful. She said, I really missed communion. Friend, communion doesn't stir the intellect. It's a snapshot that should stir the heart. And I want to suggest that how you and I are to come to the table is extremely important. As we come to this sacrament that was ordained by our Lord. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with using that word sacrament. I know we sometimes in the Bible church movement and independent church movement sort of recoil and we, we become a little bit bristled when we hear that term because of its abuse, but it's a good word. A sacrament simply means a formal religious act that is sacred as a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. And I want to suggest this morning that when you and I come to the Lord's table, as we're going to in just a few minutes, we should first look at ourselves. And then secondly, we should look to Christ. Now, as I said, all four Gospels record the Passover celebration. Jesus was meeting in an upper room with his disciples. 
And in the course of observing that Passover, Jesus drops a bombshell. He says that the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. And no doubt that caused everyone in the room to have their jaws hit the floor. Jesus had just said the unthinkable. They knew that the religious leaders were opposed to Jesus, but one of the twelve? One of them sitting right there at the Passover table? How, how is that possible? And yet Jesus says that one of them was going to betray Jesus. And as such, verse 23 says, they begin to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. But what's interesting is you read the other accounts. It says that each one of them also begin to say, Lord, is it I? Is it me? It was a question. And here's the kicker. <laughs> Judas got in on the act. Judas, according to Matthew 26, 25, says, Surely not I, Rabbi. You know, in the case of the eleven, it was a sincere question that reflected on their lack of confidence and their own spiritual strength. But in the case of Judas, it was said in an effort to cover his deceit. And you know, what's always amazed me as I've looked at the observance of the last Passover and the beginning of the Lord's table is that when Jesus said that, nobody said, it's got to be Judas. You know, I always was suspect of him. Those beady eyes, those mannerisms of his. I never really trusted that guy. But you know what? Each one began to look at himself and he said, Lord, is it I? And here's the application. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight 28 through 32, the Apostle Paul tells us that when we come to the table, what we're supposed to do is we are to examine ourselves before we partake. And Paul says that a failure to do that can result in discipline from the Lord. Let me bring this down to a very practical level this morning and suggest four areas that we should examine ourselves. First of all, I think we should examine our attitudes. When we come to the table, we ought to look at the attitude that we have towards life. You say, where do you, where do you get that from this passage of Scripture? Well, Look, if you would, at verse 17, okay? It says, after taking the cup, Jesus gave thanks. That Greek word is the Greek word Eucharist. If you've ever wondered why the Roman Catholics call the sacrament the Eucharist, it's because it's where we are to give thanks. And what happened is there were four cups that were passed around during the Jewish Passover, and without going into all the symbolism of those four, each one of those cups, when they were consumed, was marked repeatedly by thanksgiving and joy. And the Passover was a time to give thanks to God for his great deliverance in the Exodus. And the Lord's Supper 
is a time for us to give thanks and to express our joy for what Jesus has provided for us in the sacrifice of himself on the cross. What's more, it should be a time of hope. And I want to suggest this morning that thanksgiving and hope are attitudes. So when you and I come to the table, we need to examine our attitudes. The outlook that we have on life. As you come to the table this morning, are you a people who are thankful, joyful, hopeful? Or are you a grumbler and a complainer whose life is marked by gloom and despair? We need to look at our attitude when we come to the table. But secondly, we also need to examine our actions. Jesus shocked the disciples by announcing that the hand of the one betraying him was on the table. And in that culture, to share a meal with someone was an act of friendship and loyalty. And for Jesus then to turn around and say that one of them in their midst was going to betray Jesus... Someone who had been with him for three long years was just over the top. And so I want to suggest that not only are we to look at our attitudes, we're also to look at our actions. And ask ourselves the question, are any of us this morning in danger of betraying the Savior? You know, none of us can say that we're immune from that this morning. No one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. In other words, we're all prone to selfishness and sinful behavior, which could easily result in failure. We're prone to pride that can easily come into our, our, our life And I want to suggest that the Lord's Supper is a time for us to pause and examine our actions over the past week, maybe over the past month, over the past number of weeks or whatever it's been since you last observed the table. And ask yourself the question, is there anything selfish or prideful in my life that I've not yet confessed? And if there is, the solution is not, well, I'm, I'm going to abstain this morning. I, I, Doug, I'm just so unworthy to come to the table. No, the Bible says we're to examine ourselves. And in the course of examining ourselves, when we see those shortcomings, what we do is we confess them. And we restore that fellowship with the Lord. And then we partake. In other words, if God is convicting you this morning of some sin in your life that you've been unwilling to confess up to this point in time, what he's asking you to do right now is to bring it to him and obtain his forgiveness and his mercy. And the Lord's table is a reminder that for every sin, no matter how bad, no matter how great or seemingly small, there's forgiveness available in the blood of Jesus. And so we come with a repentant attitude. We come confessing our sins. We we come asking for his cleansing. 
We examine our attitude, we examine our actions, but thirdly, I think we should examine our affections. We examine our affections. Look, if you would, at verse 15. You say, where'd you get that from, Doug? Look at verse 15. Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That phrase, eagerly desired, is a Hebrew expression that literally means I have desired with desire. And it's here, by the way, that the King James is pretty much spot on in its translation. It says, with desire I have desired to eat this meal with you. Jesus was sharing his his emotion, his great love for his disciples. And friend, there is no greater love in the universe than the love that led our Savior to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So the Lord's Supper is a time to examine our affections. Has my heart been right with God? Has his great love for me motivated me to turn away from sin, to deny myself in service for him, to be filled with praise and gratitude and thanksgiving for his great salvation? Does the sacrificial love and forgiveness prompt me to love and ask forgiveness of each member of my family and those in the family of God that I may have offended? Those are hard questions to ask and answer. But it needs to be done. You see, when you and I come to the table, we examine our attitude, we examine our actions, and we examine our affections. But I said, not only are we to look at ourselves, we're also to look at Christ. And the challenge here is if we look too long at ourselves, we end up in despair. And so what we have to do is move from ourselves because we realize all of our shortcomings, all of our failures. And we look at Christ who alone is our hope and salvation. Let me quickly suggest four things about our Savior. First of all, as we look to Christ, we see someone who sovereignly, willingly, intentionally, freely laid down his life of his own accord. You know, one of the things that's very, very interesting, and hopefully you can do this on your own, is to look at the four gospel accounts of of these events and sort of put them together And one of the things that you will discover is that Jesus was in absolute control over every circumstance surrounding his impending death. Friend, nothing throughout the entirety of Jesus' life, especially the final week of his life, caught him by surprise. When Jesus was was telling his disciples, I want you to go into the city and I want you to look for a man who would be carrying a water jug and then I want you to follow him and then go to this unnamed man who allow you to use his upper room. What you see is a clear evidence of Jesus in control of everything. Furthermore, he wasn't at all surprised by the betrayal of Judas. Again, I'm sure that it shocked the 11, but it didn't surprise Jesus. 
In fact, earlier when Jesus fed the 5,000, he announced that one of the 12 would betray him. And scripture, as you again piece this all together, portrays very clearly that Jesus was in control of everything. Now, people were still held accountable for their actions. But it was all part of God's predetermined plan. His death was no accident. Evil men didn't temporarily get the upper hand on God and you know, God was up in heaven wringing his hands and Jesus was going, oh my shattered nerves, what just happened? No, it was all part of God's decree before the foundation of the world. And when you and I look at the cross this morning, and as we remember him around this table, we can take comfort as his followers that he voluntarily laid down his life for us. It didn't catch him by surprise. He controlled every event. Now here's the application. And don't miss it. If Jesus was controlling every event in his life, he's also controlling every event in yours. Friend, I cannot explain and will never attempt to why God does what he does. I cannot explain, and I've seen so much in 40 years of ministry, why God allows certain events to take place. I've learned the best thing I can say is, I'm clueless. I don't know. None of us has the answers to those impossible to explain events. But you know what I do know? And I've seen this firsthand. God loves me. And God loves you. And he's in control. And when you and I come to observe the table, we can look at the events surrounding that final week of our Lord's life. In fact, the entirety of Christ's life and know that he was in control. Secondly, when I look at the table... I look to Christ who knows my heart. He knows my heart. He knew Judas's heart. He knew Peter's heart. When Peter said, Lord, I'm never ever going to betray you. Nope, ain't going to happen. Friend, nothing this morning is hidden from his sight. And you are a fool this morning if you think you're covering your sins by hypocritically saying as Judas did, Lord, is it I? Why, me sin? No. Listen, when we come to the table, knowing that he knows everything in our heart, we should then readily confess everything. I'm not suggesting you have to come to me. You come to the Lord. Through the years, I've had people come to me, and I guess it's just to make themselves feel better, and, and I understand that. And when they do it, it's kept in the strictest of confidences. But friend, if there's things in your life, and it's just between you and the Lord, confess it, and it need not go any further. Thirdly, let me suggest that when we come to the table and we look to Christ, we see a sacrificial death that is at the heart of the Christian faith. 
That's what, that's what the Lord's table is about. Just as the Passover was the central event in the Old Testament, so also the death of Jesus Christ is the central paramount event in the New Testament. And when Jesus gave bread to his disciples and said, this is my body, he was still there in bodily form. And they understood that what that statement meant was that that bread represented his body. And when you and I in a few moments will take that bread and as I'll quote from Jesus when he said, this is my body, it's a reminder to us that the eternal Son of God took on a human body and he lived a sinless life in that body and then bore in that body our sins on the cross. And we know that the cup points to the shed blood of Christ and the true Passover lamb. And you know, there's a, there's a little phrase and, and chances are you, like me, have overlooked it. But I love the fact that Jesus in Matthew 26, 27 and Mark 14, 23 says, drink from it, all of you. All of you. Friend, the Bible nowhere tells us that only a special class of believers called priests can drink from the cup. It's for everyone. It's for all of you. And he says that it's the basis of a new covenant that he was establishing with us. Well, there's one final point, and it's simply this. When we look to Christ at the table, we see his resurrection and promised return that's guaranteed to us by the efficacy or the effectiveness of his death. Jesus solemnly assures his disciples that he will not eat the Passover meal or drink of the fruit of the vine again until he does it with them in the kingdom. I believe that in the future kingdom, Jesus will again celebrate with his followers the Lord's Supper. He'll do it as a memorial, similar to what we're doing here this morning. And by doing so, Jesus predicts his resurrection and his coming again in power and glory to establish his kingdom. He's pointing ahead to the day when his kingdom will be established. You say, well, Doug, what's, what's the takeaway this morning? I, I've been a little slow. I know I got that extra hour of sleep, but you know what, Doug? I dozed off once or twice. I understand. <laughs> Doug, what are you trying to say? It's simply this. If your heart this morning is cold toward the Savior, maybe you failed to get an accurate picture of what the Lord's table about is all about. And what he's asking you to do is come to his table and look at yourself. Look at your attitude, your actions, and your affections. And confess any apathy that you may have had towards the Lord's Supper as being simply a routine that we ritually go through. That you determine that by God's grace you're going to turn away from sin and you're going to maintain a close fellowship with the Lord. And then you look to Christ who freely gave himself for you 
and you allow your heart to be moved by his love is seen on the cross. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're thankful for this marvelous, marvelous ordinance that is ours. We pray, Father, that you would just bless each one who's here this morning. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in our midst who's yet to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would do so right now. That in the quietness of this moment, they would simply turn to you and say, Lord Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner. (laughs) I'm an abysmal failure. I failed so many times. And I realize that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I'm going to trust him and him alone is my Savior. And we're grateful that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved and part of the family of God. And so we pray that believers who have confessed their sins would enjoy this table as we remember our Savior's death, burial, and resurrection. And Father, those who came in this morning without Christ would join us in remembering their new Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray towards that end, in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, amen.